Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, what do surfing and oil have in common? They're both measured by the barrel. What did the wave say to the surfer? Have a swell time. My guest today is Dr. Cyndia Sostian. Cyndia is a paleoclimatologist, which means she studies how the earth used to look millions of years ago in order to better understand what may be going on with our current climate. Cyndia is a past Sir Keith Murdoch Fellow, Fulbright Distinguished Scholar, and currently teaches and conducts research at Cardiff University in the UK. In today's episode, we chat about how surfing influenced Cyndia's worldwide travel and studies, taking her from the States to Australia and then the UK. We also chat about paleoclimatology, what it is and how you can get involved, and so much more. Please enjoy. Cindy, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am very excited to chat with you today. Uh, thank you. I'm really uh, stoked to be on, and yeah, I'm excited to talk too. So you're the first paleoclimatologist I've had on the show, and I'm really, really excited to dive more into this and about your research. Could you explain what a paleoclimatologist does? Yeah, so um, I, I, that's a really great question, and um, I think not many people know or can visualize a paleoclimatologist, but if you ever watched the movie Day After Tomorrow and remember Dennis Quaid, that actor, he was a paleoclimatologist. He was the one trying to save the Earth from a critical change in ocean circulation, and so kind of building on that, I'm not Dennis Quaid, but I, I look at changes in past climate using a range of approaches. Um, to understand future climate change or our current climate. So I can explore how warm it was in the past in a time period that had similar kind of atmospheric carbon dioxide levels, so greenhouse gas levels to today, um, to help us understand where we're moving forward to, how our Earth system will respond. I can also look at how much ice there was on Earth in the past, I can think about how salty the ocean was or how acidic it was. So there's a range of different things you can look at to try and explore and understand Earth's climate. And so um, I sometimes say I'm like a paleontologist, um, but not dinosaurs, but climate to give people an, an understanding. 
Yeah. So I saw on your website, on Cardiff University's website, that you use a range of novel and traditional geochemical techniques. What are these techniques that you use to try to visualize what was going on? Yeah, that's really that's a really good question. And I always I've got to look at what's on my website one of these days. <laughs> yeah, so kind of traditionally paleoclimatologists use a range of geochemical tracers. So specifically what I look at are marine microfossils. So it can be anywhere from these tiny cell size organisms that live in the surface ocean or the deep ocean that make shells or skeletons out of calcium carbonate. So I can look at the geochemistry of shells. I can look at the geochemistry of clams that I find or the geochemistry of skeletons um, related to corals. And the geochemistry, when I'm thinking about geochemistry, when these corals or these clams or these surface dwelling organisms make these skeletons or shells, they're actually making their shell based on the products that are not just in the surface ocean, but in the deep ocean where they're growing. So the one that's my favorite that I think about quite a lot are these single-celled organisms called foraminifera that live in the surface ocean. And when they make their shell, they make it out of calcium and carbonate. But along the way, they also pick up other things like magnesium or strontium or barium, different elements that are just available in the surface ocean. And we know that these foraminifera actually incorporate more of certain elements under warmer temperatures. And we know Mm. that by looking at fossils that we find in a very warm climate and finding elevated magnesium levels. We know that we can see in the modern day, if you collect some of these foraminifera shells from a cold area and from a very warm area, that you know that they'll have the differences in their magnesium composition or the amount of magnesium in their shell. So we can use that relationship between the amount of magnesium in their shell and their ambient temperature to look at temperature in the past or temperature 15 million years ago, 25 million years ago, or whenever we think it's interesting and useful. And that holds true for coral skeletons as well. We know that there's certain elements that corals incorporate into their skeleton under colder or warmer conditions. It all comes Mm. down to chemistry ultimately. Like imagine if you had a beaker and you were growing a crystal, you heated that beaker up, the chemistry of the crystal made would be slightly different than if it was under cooler temperatures. So that basic relationship is what we can use to kind of reconstruct temperature, whether it's surface ocean temperature, temperature of the deep ocean, temperature in the tropical uh, area, um, but we can use to reconstruct in the past. That is wild to think about. So you look at corals and foraminifera and maybe other things, and you're looking at just the different elements that they've used to create their shells and or their skeleton structures. And based on what they've used, you can tell what temperature the earth was millions of years ago. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, it it depends. So um, you can find a foraminifera, you know, in the modern ocean and and look at its shell and and tell something about the modern ocean. Or you can find fossils that eventually made their way to the deep ocean, the mud, and became part of the sediment or the ocean on the ocean floor. And we can actually collect them using uh, drilling core ships. So we we go out on these um, expeditions and we recover sediments from the deep ocean. And we can find a certain section of that sediment and we can know that it was maybe a million years old and we can pick the the microfossils, these foraminifera shells that are in this this sediment and you can you can extract them and say, oh, it was, you know, a degree or two warmer a million years ago than it was today. 
And what we do actually is we don't just do kind of like a little sneak peek. We try and put records together, just like if you were going to take a thermometer, put it in the ocean and try and track temperature across the year, you would see warmer periods, cooler periods. We try and actually create records. So we can create records, uh, you know, across many millions of years. And instead of looking at seasons, we look at changes every thousands of years because that's about the resolution we can we can we can get from um, our sediment cores. I find it really exciting and interesting. I didn't learn very much about paleoclimatology until um, I had just finished my uni- almost at the end of my university degree, and I just learned that you could look at past oceans, past Earth, past geology. All of that just really blew my mind and excited me. <laughs> Yeah, let's chat about that. And I kind of want to circle back to what an expedition would look like. But I'm really curious, like, how did you get into this? What introduced you to this world of paleoclimatology and looking so far into the past? Yeah, well, um, it kind of uh, was related to a few things. So I'm a big surfer and surfing has always been part of my life. And um, I've always been by the sea. And and so I feel like a, a common theme with a lot of us ocean scientists is that you know, the ocean is a big part of our life and you're drawn to it. And as you get older, you want to learn more about it. Um, I went to do my um, university degree in chemistry. I just always was really interested in in space and and also just that, you know, that you you see things, but then there's smaller blocks like atoms and molecules and all that really interests me. And so I did a chemistry degree, but it wasn't until my third year that I met my physics professor and I took a class in physics physics and he basically took us through just basics of physical oceanography and 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 talked to me and kind of took me under his wing and and talked to me about ocean sciences and 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 said you know you can you could study ocean sciences if you want as as a job and I said I didn't know that I mean that's kind of (laughs) obvious now (laughs) but but he was really supportive and and so I went and did a summer undergraduate program where we um, actually tried to look at it's called paleomagnetism so try and understand how Earth's magnetic field changed in the past. Mm. And we grew minerals under different magnetic fields and tried to see if they retained the properties associated with that very magnetic field. And um, after that, after I learned that you could look at past magnetic fields, past climate, past oceans, that was a really big changing point for me. And I just fully moved forward. I wanted to be an ocean scientist. I wanted to be a paleoclimatologist. You know, I feel actually quite lucky that I, every day I walk around and I, I'm aware of this, this kind of topic and subject. Yeah. And so I luckily was able to, you know, I applied, I got, uh, got into a PhD program in a marine and coastal sciences department in New Jersey at the Institute of Marine and Coastal Sciences at Rutgers. And it was a great five to six year period. But in that, that journey, I, I learned even more, you know, about the chemistry of the oceans, the climate, the physical oceanography, and through that PhD, I was able to kind of ask a few questions about past climates that interest me and then kind of come out the other end to where I am. And I was really lucky. Um, I got to go on research cruises, you know, where we extract sediment courses. So it was a really practical PhD as well. And so Mm. I've kind of come out of it just with this different perspective. And, you know, I want everybody to know what a paleoclimatologist is, I suppose. So what does a research expedition look like? And does it look, when you were at Rutgers, were they similar expeditions to what you're doing now with your own research? 
Yeah, well, good question. Uh, the funny thing is, I'd say, is when you're a PhD student, you're just kind of enjoying everything, where now I'm doing my own research, you know, I'm, I'm at the helm. So that's one difference. But um, <laughs> when I was a PhD student, um, they were really well thought out research proposals that got funded to, say, explore and understand how changes in seawater chemistry impact how these marine organisms grow, these foraminifera. So one, one cruise, we went to the Norwegian seas. And we were collecting not just sediment cores, but also water. So what we would do on a, on a daily uh, day is we would go to a location that had been previously surveyed and we had bathymetric information or information about where we wanted to actually collect a core. And on that cruise, we were trying to really understand how um, changes in that the deep ocean chemistry, so the waters that the foraminifera grew in, how it impacted their shell and how it impacted the chemistry of their shell so we would collect what they call a multi-core, which is a meter-long core. And what it would do is it would capture not just the sediment, but the overlying water. So you would send down this multi-core, and it had about eight legs with uh, eight cylinders. And you mm. send it to the bottom, and then you trigger it to close. And it would collect that sediment and not disturb that sediment-water interface. So you would bring it up and there would still be creatures growing. <laughs> uh, but the main thing is you could actually collect recently living foraminifera and you could collect the water, the overlying water. And so what that project was all about was not just the sediment in the foram, but it was actually trying to look at the chemistry of the water and see if it matched the chemistry of the shell. So that would provide a really good basis for how we understood how we use this relationship between temperature, say, and the chemistry of the shell in the past as well. So that cruise was about 14 days and we were just collecting um, these cores uh, for 14 days in seawater and doing basic analysis on the ship or storing samples for analysis back in the lab. Another cruise that I went on, which was really enjoyable, was um, going off the coast of New Zealand. And that was enjoyable just because it was a mixed kind of international group. They were doing a range of different approaches but that was a little bit different in the sense that they were trying to understand changes in the Pacific Ocean over not just like a thousand years, but a million years. So they were deploying cylinders that were really long. So they were called piston cores. So they're trying to collect many, many meters of mud to reconstruct climate in that region for many, many millions of years. And so that was a, a, a more kind of... Uh, a bigger crew, lots more expertise to deploy that long core to recover that material. Then that core was brought up on the ship. Uh, we were able to look at it, describe it, do basic sort of assessment. You, you could actually also look to see kind of what's present in foraminifera, the abundances. Um, and that was able mm -hmm. to give you an appreciation of just what you got is what you expected. So if you were looking to see that there were big changes in climate, sometimes you can look at these foraminifera and the, the way they look, the shapes or the different species that are present can tell you whether or not it's warmer or cooler. So you can use that as a basic way to kind of infer, you know, where you are in time and also what you're seeing in your location. So those cruises were mostly sediment corn cruises. It's actually funny because most of my PhD work was looking at using foraminifera to reconstruct mm -hmm. paleoclimate and answer questions about how ocean's temperatures changed in the past, and also looking at how we can understand how's that impacted uh, the amount of ice, so whether or not we have more ice or less ice. But following my PhD, I was, I was really keen to work on um, the tropics and understand <laughs> tropical climate change more. 
And so that led to a transition where I went off to Australia and I worked at the Australian National University and we were actually going to Indonesia to collect coral skeletons from earthquake Amazing. and reefs. Yeah. So we went to Indonesia. We went to an island off the west coast of the Mentawis and we were ultimately trying to find corals that had been uplifted in those great Indonesian earthquakes in 2004, 2005. Mm-hmm. Because part of the island could be uplifted maybe two to three meters. So we were looking for corals that had been uplifted, corals that survived that uplift. And we took cores from these coral skeletons to use to take back to the lab and also look at the geochemistry of the coral skeleton over time and and see whether or not we could potentially come up with an earthquake proxy and and see whether or not that big shift and uplift was actually, um, was there was a fingerprint left in the coral skeleton to tell us something about it. Was there? Yes, that's an interesting question. So yeah, actually, there was. (laughs) (laughs) So when corals are uplifted during an earthquake, they go from maybe about three meters to to one meter, say. And so they go from a a, a darker environment to a clearer, brighter environment. And that can actually Mm -hmm. input the way they grow. So corals are animals, but they ultimately have a symbiotic relationship with plants. They have these things they call symbionts, which are photosynthesizing, so using light. So if you uplift a coral, those symbionts they have are going to higher rates of photosynthesis. And that can actually alter the chemistry of the seawater, which the coral can record. So it was pretty cool because in a few of the sites that were really uplifted, maybe two meters from our work, you could see that you saw a big shift in the elemental composition associated with that change in light, potentially driving these these coral symbionts to alter their rates of photosynthesis. That was a unique expedition in the sense that we got to wander around a really impressive uplifted coral terraces and also just get a sense for earthquake impacts. Yeah. It's super fascinating. I mean, it's like I mean, yeah, paleoclimatology. You are you are like a paleontologist. It's fascinating to hear what is possible. How do you know? I mean, I feel like, you know, 2004, 2005 earthquakes is fairly uh, straightforward to determine what would uplifted those corals. But when you're looking at like really long, long ago in our standards, like how do you know it was like 15 million years ago versus like 20 million years ago? Yeah, so with corals, at least, you're you're generally working in, in the Indonesian area, at least kind of more recent times, like uh, maybe a thousand years or, or 10,000. Um, okay. When it comes to the foraminifera work, you're working on timescales, like I've said, like 15 million years, 20 million years. Okay. You can actually work on all of these timescales uh, with all these different types of material. Uh, what you need is well-dated material. So with foraminifera, if you have a really long sediment core, you can actually look at the changes of an abundance of different species of foraminifera, and it can tell you whether or not it was 15 million years ago or 10 million years ago. We know that certain forums only lived for certain periods of time. Mm. So that can help give you some sort of age indicator. We also know that there's different ways you can come up with dates for more recent cores. You can look at radiocarbon dates. So there's different kind of clocks we can use to ascertain how far back in time we're looking at. How big are these core samples? Like how long? When you put them in the ground, like how how deep do they go? 
meters and meters and meters. And so the, the ships that I went on were doing just short cores, like a few meters. But when okay. it comes to uh, this ocean drilling program, so I don't think I mentioned that, but some of the cores that I've been working on are part of something called the ocean drilling program. And they send a ship out and scientists, engineers, everyone for two months, and they just stay on one location and keep extracting cores. So we're talking 20 to 30 meters, even in excess of that. Depends how far back in time you go, how much sediment is available. Mm. And then what I can do as a scientist is I can request samples from that core mm -hmm. and the repository will go in and sample the sediment at the intervals I request based on my sense of the age from the published work that's been out there on looking at kind of the stratigraphy or changes in layers or changes in uh, what was living at that time. Hmm. So when they're, they're just staying on one site and they're taking all these samples, what, just for like science or are they looking for something in particular? It could be for a number of questions, actually. So it's an integrated approach across the globe, ultimately. So different countries have the ability to send scientists. So in the UK, we can send a few scientists. In the US, several scientists. So it's an international group of scientists on a ship. And ultimately, they're coming together. And usually, there's a similar theme. They're all interested in a, in a certain time in the past or a certain mm -hmm. question. But maybe they work on it in a different way. So someone could be working on looking at what type of microbes were present in the past in, in these sedimentary records. Or someone else could be looking at, like I'm doing, past climates. Mm -hmm. Someone could be trying to understand changes in chemistry, seawater chemistry in the past. So they all come together under a similar question or a similar kind of uh, trying to answer a similar problem, but coming at it with many different angles. And so it's an integrated ship of scientists with a range of questions. I haven't been on one of the cruises, but what's great about it is that although I haven't been on, I can also request that material and, right. and w work on it. So it's a, an incredible kind of repository that's been, been ongoing for a while now. That's awesome. Great joint effort. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The funding keeps coming up and we keep, you know, trying to highlight how important it is. It really fuels multi-generations of paleoclimatological science and also not just paleoclimatology. It also people who are looking at kind of geodynamics or more like fundamental processes like Earth's inner crust or how Earth's formed. They also are using samples uh, depending on where these locations and where the ship goes. Hmm. Fascinating. So you look at way in the past, do you compare with what's happening now and try to draw any conclusions from it? Yeah, so there's there's a few things you can do. Um, and part of the research that we're looking at is you're trying to understand in past kind of warm periods or periods when atmospheric carbon dioxide was at similar levels, what did Earth's ocean temperature look like? Was it very warm in the tropics? Was it, you know, how warm was it? Was it just as warm in the tropics as the poles? Uh, how much ice was there? What did the ocean acidity look like? So we've done a little work looking at around 15 million years ago. So we know that atmospheric carbon dioxide was higher and much higher than it is today, kind of where we're moving forward by, say, 2050 or 2100. But we know that it was at those levels for, for natural reasons, whether or not it's enhanced volcanic activity, emitting CO2, or different kind of slow processes. But it's an interesting place to go because you can look at, like I said, the distribution of temperature in the ocean and look at changes in ocean acidity. And then you can compare. So we've done a little bit of work looking at ocean acidity 
And what we've done is, again, used kind of novel tracers in these foraminifera, looked at boron, which is boron 11, that you can look at the certain isotope, a certain element in this foraminifera, and it can tell you something about the pH or the ocean acidity in the past. Mm. And we wanted to compare it to the future. So we know that by 2100 or in about 80 years, ocean pH is expected kind of to change and become more acidic. It's already become slightly acidic. And we wanted to constrain that. So we wanted to ask the question, how long ago was it that pH was as low as it's predicted for 2100? And our work showed that it, it was around 14 to 15 million years ago that we had a similar sort of ocean acidity that's predicted for 2100. So what, what's the pH that's predicted for 2100? Around 7.8, 7.7. Um, okay. And right now we're like right at seven. We're at around 8.1. We're slightly basic. <laughs> right. So pH is a tricky thing. Um, but yeah, so ultimately we're, we're, we're declining and, and we know that, you know, over the last kind of hundred years, uh, we've, we've declined, but yeah, moving forward, it's predicted depends if we continue in business as usual around kind of 7.8, 7.7. Last time it was in that range was, you said, 15 million years ago? Around 14 to 15, yeah. Okay, 14 to 15 million years ago. So what did the oceans look like that long ago? Yeah, well, that's a good question. We tried to kind of think about what was happening then. And then we know we have these kind of megalodon sharks. There's these impressive kind of ranges of, of kelp along the coastal oceans. And it seems like most organisms that create their skeleton um, out of calcium carbonate called calcifiers, the ones mm -hmm. that we're really worried about when we talk about ocean acidification, we're doing okay. And what we kind of learned from that kind of review was that, you know, when we think about what was happening 15 million years ago, the organisms in the ocean had a long time to adapt, so millions of years. But the processes that we're talking about moving forward you know, we're talking about hundreds of years. So it's a, a much faster rate of change. And, a, mm. and it's hard to kind of envision how marine organisms, these specific ones, these calcifiers, these ones that make their shell out of calcium carbonate are gonna, gonna manage in that, in that setting. And so the takeaways were kind of looking at the broad range of variability in ocean acidification. Um, but thinking about when you think about marine organisms, you thinking about the rate of change is the big thing moving forward. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I would, I think it's kind of anywhere on the natural world. It's the, the rate of change that can drastically impact things. Evolution and adapt adaptations take a long time. Yeah. That's a big thing that I think it falls out of everything we do these days. You know, it's, um, even with the paleoclimate work. So, you know, we're looking at how temperatures change or, how when you're under higher CO2 levels, how did, how did temperature change? You can look at the sensitivity of climate to CO2. But we come back to these, these questions of, uh, well, that rate of change, you know, what can we predict is going to happen? You know, the, it's hard to find modern analogs with that rate of change to compare. Mm -hmm. Because when we look at the geological record, things in most instances are, are slower timescales. So we get a sense of what the possibilities are, what the feedbacks are, but it's hard to find a direct analog because really we're creating our own kind of future <laughs> unique to the geological record. So. Right, the Anthropocene. <laughs> yes, yes, the Anthropocene. So I want to shift back to corals. So the foraminifera is kind of what you look like when what you're looking at when you're looking 14, 15 million years ago, correct? And then the corals yeah. is 
you're looking like more more recent, still thousand ten, a thousand to ten thousand years ago. Is that what you said? Yeah. So I think so. For my research, that's kind of what I've been looking at. Other people though use corals that are really well preserved and that have been collected from say uh, sedimentary formations that are well dated, uh, where people have a sense that maybe it is fifteen million, sixteen, seventeen. But it's hard to sometimes find well-preserved specimens. So the work I do is actually more recent than even a thousand or ten thousand years. So the work I did in Indonesia, looking at earthquakes, that was looking at kind of a thousand to ten thousand years and whether or not we could we could look at earthquakes in the past. But my more recent work actually is looking at the last hundred years in coral reef environments. Which just saying it here kind of blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> It's still paleoclimate. So ultimately, as my research has evolved, I kind of am bringing in thinking about the organism now. So I've typically been using tracers in these fossils, whether that's corals or clams or these foraminifera, to look mm-hmm. at the environment. But now I'm trying to understand how the environment is impacting them. Mm-hmm. So we've been working on um, coral skeletons that we recovered from Fiji. And you can take x-rays of these coral skeletons and you can actually look at periods where they grew very fast or very slow or they stopped growing or basically it's it's their history mm-hmm. so we're able to use uh, x-rays and 3d images you would go to the doctor and get a scan look at your x-ray of a bone we can look at the x-ray of a coral skeleton in the past i had somebody on the show Oh, it's been a few months now, but I had somebody on the show fairly recently that told me about x-raying corals and it's still, and that was the first time I heard about it. And this, it still brings to mind like an image of like a coral, like on a little hospital bed, you know, with like white sheets and you're like kind of sending it through like a big, I mean, I'm picturing an MRI machine, I guess, but like kind of like a big x-ray machine. It's a very funny image in my head. (laughs) Yeah, it's quite funny. I've never had that image because, um, because I actually was the one who would you you basically you go in the field and you go to different regions and you collect cores of these mm-hmm. really big massive mound corals that grow maybe like ten to twenty millimeters per year and they deposit their skeleton like tree rings so you can mm-hmm. take a core you can cut it open and you can already see you can count back almost and say oh that was a hundred years ago that was fifty years ago. So I was the one who would take the skeleton and you'd ring up. I remember in Australia still ringing up the hospital and saying, I need to bring in some corals to get x-rayed. <laughs> uh, and they almost didn't believe me. And I was waiting, you know, waiting with my patient outside in the waiting room. <laughs> and then I bring them in and I have to, basically, I have to lay them down. So I wish I saw the coral polyp hanging out with me, you know. <laughs> like with a wink saying well done you you're gonna uncrack all my secrets but it was a mixture of all like all the x-ray technicians and and do- uh, like people who were around came in and just were amazed what I was scanning yeah and it was a mixture of making sure that I could get the settings right to resolve everything I wanted right so it's kind of funny I now look back probably yeah coral polyp was on my shoulder but it would just be me carrying around these slabs of coral skeleton. It was like my date for the evening and I'd take it down. And... We go to the hospital, get some x-rays done. Yeah, get some x-rays done and then take them back and you have a, have, have, you have a look. <laughs> That's so funny. So now these corals, this is one organism that you kind of, like you mentioned, like a tree that you're cutting. So these corals 
are hundreds of years old that you're looking at. Yeah, so the ones, the species that we're looking at are these, they're called Pyrites, and they're these really mm-hmm. dominant species that are in the Indo-Pacific, and they they form these pretty impressive skeletons. So if you were to go diving in a clear water site, you may see this really big mound, or it looks like, like a brain coral, and it could be up to mm-hmm. six meters in height. <laughs> I'm always blown away. So I've seen a few that are three to four, and um, when you're diving and you come upon it, you're just in awe. So with corals, the color that you see on the surface, that's the tissue layer, that's the living bit, right? So they have that symbiotic algae that give them that color. But then you have, you know, loads of coral polyps or these little anemone-like things that are growing and secreting this skeleton. And so you're looking at this living structure that's been around for maybe 600 years. And that I'm always in awe of that. (laughs) Yes. And then I'm in awe that we can, you know, we can go to like an island like Fiji and ask questions like 150 years ago, how were corals growing uh, relative today? Was the environment colder or warmer? You can even look at questions around nutrients. So were there more nutrients or less? And that's important because we just want to know how that's impacting growth. And you can go in and collect a core that could be six meters long. The ones we're working with are one to one and a half meters. And they're mostly from the inshore reefs in Fiji. And what we did is we sampled two different types of coral species, but these two that we sampled are really important for the reef. So they're reef building corals. They're pretty important moving forward to to understand how, say, when things get really warm, how do they respond? Do they bleach? Do they expel that plant that grows within them? Mm. So we were trying to come at it with a range of different angles, but just extracting those cores, you could already see things. So you didn't even have to taken back to the lab just in Fiji you were able to look at those corals and see lines or bands when potentially things didn't go well you could see when things are eating away at the coral called biorotors so you could see a whole you could already tell a little bit of its history just by looking at the coral cores that was very vivid I remember yeah so what were you seeing you mentioned you know it was the nutrients higher or lower than it is now or was the temperature higher or lower what what were some of the answers to the questions Yeah, so it's still kind of ongoing work, but what we've kind of noticed Mm -hmm. is that we looked at corals that were growing in kind of two extremes. One, it was kind of clear, there wasn't much going on in land, meaning there's not a lot of pollutants getting into the water, or the water was, it was just a kind of pristine environment, I guess that's a good way to explain it. Corals were growing really well there, Mm -hmm. like fast rates, had a typical life. Um, But if you look at another region further in the Northeast, while it was cloudy, it was murkier, it seemed that corals were growing just slower on average. And so we're Mm. actually still trying to understand that, to understand why we're seeing these differences. We did Mm. notice, though, that temperature, so when we had elevated temperature for prolonged periods of time, corals get stressed and they can slow their growth, they can bleach. So we noticed that both sites ultimately still responded and bleached, but that in general, this this site that had cloudier, kind of murkier water wasn't doing as well. We're we're still trying to disentangle why that is. Mm -hmm. You know, is it due to there was a sugarcane plantation on land and that's been going on for a good hundred plus years Mm -hmm. and you have fertilizers and pollutants getting into the water there. So we're trying to kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. It makes sense that you're going to go to like Fiji, right? It has beautiful coral reefs. There's a lot of it and you, and you can study that. But also, you know, as a diver and ocean lover, like not a bad place to be as a surfer. That's awesome as well. 
I know. It's funny because uh, a lot of my work, uh, Indonesia, I got to surf Uluwatu after, which is a premier surf spot. And um, yeah. <laughs> Fiji is a funny one because I went there for two weeks and um, this was after I have two kids. And so it was after my first child was born. So I was just going there for two weeks and uh, we worked really hard for about 13 days, collected <laughs> all of my material. And then I drove no I took a taxi for three hours to get to this spot that's pretty famous on the the west coast and um it's called cloud break and it was flat yep. <laughs> it was flat oh no <laughs> did you paddle out at least no so uh I couldn't even convince the boatman he was like it's so flat I was like just take me I just want to see and he's just like it's just really flat and I was like I've learned that lesson as a surfer. I've learned many times before. You can't just surf when you want. You just have to surf when there's waves. So it's a good story. I hope to go back one day and you know, <laughs> surf cloud break. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I did get to surf in Indonesia at least. Uh, I stayed for two weeks after our field uh, expedition. And that was really great. I got to surf a lot, like all the famous spots. And uh, it's just a great experience to be traveling there. So, Absolutely. Does your family go with you? Uh, no, no. Currently, we've just been doing, um, I've just been going on my own. So I went in 2015 to Fiji, collected coral skeletons. I had a field leg in 2019, not too long ago. And that mm -hmm. was to Borneo. And I was supporting a reef expedition there. And each time, I just kind of leave the two kids with the husband and hope it all <laughs> works out. It usually does. So Everybody's still alive. We're good. <laughs> yeah, they're still alive. He's a scientist too, so he has field work. So he's worked and had to go away himself. So we usually, mm. we both say, I'm going in the field in May. No, I'm going in the field in May. And so we have to negotiate that. <laughs> Is he an ocean scientist as well? No, he's a geologist, geomorphologist. So he looks at kind of more uh, landslides and, and where sediment goes in these big kind of earthquakes. Okay. It's useful because he's like, I have to go to China and look at a landslide. And, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to Fiji. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't quite, we haven't quite converged yet. We're almost converging onto it. I was going to say, it's very similar vein of work y'all do, just kind of different offices. Yeah, so we're almost converging because we're both um, working in Borneo to some extent and in, in, in um, northern Borneo and Sabah, Malaysia. So he's working okay. on kind of the river and looking at kind of sediment transport along the river. And I'm looking at the reefs just outside the river, mm -hmm. <laughs> but you know, it hasn't happened that we, we both gone there with the whole kids and family and, and tried to actually do any science. So I, I haven't seen that happen yet. <laughs> it would be interesting. I'm sure. Yes. I uh, I'm up for it, but yeah. Who would watch the kids? That's the better question. Which one of us? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a grad student. <laughs> yes that's a good idea that's you planted a seed I will think about that <laughs> <laughs> there you go awesome I have a couple of favorite questions I like to ask towards the end of each episode what does the ocean mean to you yeah well I think that's a that's a really good question and I feel like it's changed over time I suppose that's what I would say because yeah when I was young and little it was like a space that I would go to it made me really happy there was family and friends around there. And anytime anything was rough in life, it was the place you can go to. It would make me happy. And then once I began surfing, there was a, another layer to it. Um, it also had another benefit. Like I, I just found like my overall well-being and health. 
was after I surfed just amazing and and that's kind of stuck with me and so I started to learn more about the kind of physical oceanography weather meteorology once I started surfing so it took on another layer so it was a space, space of happiness a space of learning and then once I realized you could have your job be something that you were really interested in it's taken on a whole nother level I suppose it it means now to me like when I think about our future I think about the ocean I think about what we have to maintain what we have to do I think about everything it gives us you know just providing us with a habitable planet and being a space for all of us to go and and so I feel like it's kind of keeps building so I suppose I'm in awe of the ocean now <laughs> but I think it, it keeps evolving which is exciting I live now um just off the Bristol Channel it's really different environment so it's just this really big estuarine system with 10 to 12 meters of tidal range that's really dynamic oh my gosh And yeah, coming from the Atlantic, growing up in New Jersey and growing up near the Atlantic coastline with a few meters tidal range, it's just really different and dynamic. And so I'm learning so much about this environment, which is different and not what I typically think about. It's really murky, cloudy, and, you know, these these really big tidal ranges. So kind of still learning. So I guess it means a lot and it, it keeps growing, I guess, what it means to me. I love it. That's a great answer. When did you learn to surf? Yeah, so I learned when I was around 16, although I'm not sure why it took that long, because I, I came from a surfing family, so my, my brother surfed, my dad surfed, but I just always remember I was in the inside kind of playing around. I don't know why I didn't learn, <laughs> and it was when I was 16, um, when I got my permit for my car, I remember my friend and I just said, why aren't we surfing, and we, we borrowed my brother's shortboards, and we went out, and it was the winter. It was very cold. That is a determination right there. Yeah, I know. I think determination or ignorance. I don't know what it was. but (laughs) We went out and just, it took us about six to eight months, but we taught ourselves how to surf. We put leashes on our wrists. We did not know anything. (laughs) But every time I think of those memories, it makes me smile because it it was such a fun time. And yes, it wasn't until 16 or 17. And and now, yeah, it's been about kind of 20 plus years and uh, I'm kind of more focused now with surfing than ever I suppose very cool do you have you taught your family to surf yeah so the I've taught my husband to surf um I've taught the oldest to surf although no (laughs) one's really too fussed that's okay they're only five and eight and if my husband wanted to surf a lot I wouldn't so I'm okay with him not really being bothered about it yeah fair enough (laughs) (laughs) no I want to go the waves are good no I want to go yeah yeah, no, it's so tidal here. That would not work at all. That would not work. <laughs> yeah, I did not realize that you have such drastic tides over there. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's one of the biggest ones. I think Bay of Fundy uh, and, and Bristol Channel, they're kind of the top two. So 10 to 12 meters. Yeah. So when you go surfing at low tide, you're walking a very far away. <laughs> And at high tide, it's yeah. right along the coast. So to actually figure out where to surf and when, it you have to do a lot of research. And so tides are in, tides are in my calendar to make sure I know when the tides are and like the difference. So seven meters, nine meters, ten meters. It impacts all the the surf spots differently. And, right. And also because there's so many tides, you there's just the species diversity is really different. So. Mm-hmm. they have something here called honeycomb honeycomb reefs so they're made by these like worms that are just basically kind of secreting sediments and so you can go and um look at look at these 
these reef environments after you've surfed when it's low tide. So it's a really unique, interesting area. Very cool. I love it. Actually, one question I wanted to ask you earlier, what inspired you to go to Australia? It's very far away from the U.S. There's two reasons, I suppose. It's um, the Australian National University was really well known for their coral reef research. So they had a yes. set of scientists that were just doing pretty impressive work because uh, it's quite a lot of effort to go and collect coral cores and do, do the research. So I met one of the scientists there and um, he also was doing a lot of field work in Indonesia. And mm. I, I was just really interested, like I said, from the end of my PhD, I'd been working more on thinking about how cool or warm it was in the high latitudes, like the polar regions. And so I wanted to learn a little bit more about the, the tropics. And one way to do that is to explore fossils from the tropics, like coral skeletons. And so I met him and he, he said, you should <laughs> drop me a line and you could always go surfing in Indonesia and learn about corals. And, and that pretty much was it. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I will call you in Australia because I could learn about corals, work on corals, and go surfing in Indonesia. It's like my dream, you know. <laughs> and I had been in the States for 29 years, and I just thought it'd be really great to kind of go experience a, a new place, a new culture. Yeah. And you had the, you got the Sir Keith Murdoch Fellowship. Could you explain a little bit more about what that is? Yeah, so the first kind of few years of my post-PhD research, I had funding for these fellowships. So there's this really cool association called the American Australian Association, um, and mm -hmm. they fund Americans to do research in Australia and vice versa. And the one I applied for was a Sir Keith Murdoch uh, Fellowship, and I think there was a certain kind of climate change or environmental aspect to that one. So it provided mm -hmm. me with a year's salary. It provided me with funds to travel. And then the host or scientist that was supporting me provided uh, finances around uh, research analysis or travel for field work, etc. But it was the best fellowship. Um, I got to go to Australia and I stayed on for another year. They had money and salary for me outside of for something else. Um, but I was part of a cohort and I actually got to meet the prime minister. Um, <laughs> as part wow. of a reception for us. And so I, I just thought I was a paleoclimatologist celebrity for a month or so. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. What a cool experience. Yeah. I, I got to meet the prime minister and he, he told me that I was doing really great science. And I thought, wow, have I peaked? Is this it today? Is this happening? <laughs> Is this it today? <laughs> and looking back now, did you peak then? Or are you still going? No, I think I'm still going. I think who knows the peak could be right around the corner. You know, no, I'm, I'm feeling I'm still going. Good. <laughs> and then what, I mean, Australia sounds amazing and perfect, right? You get to surf in Indonesia. What prompted you to make this jump to the UK? Wales was uh, something I had on my radar because um, another scientist actually in Car at Cardiff University in Wales. Uh, she was working on paleoclimatology and I had known her, she's an amazing scientist and I wanted to work with her. And so there's another fellowship scheme called the F Fulbright Fellowship. So you mm -hmm. can go from the US to UK or they send scientists the other way to do research. And so I applied for that and, and I got it and I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> I was in Australia. I was like, I was gonna live out my life there, I think I decided. <laughs> but I really wanted to work with her and I Googled whether or not you could go surfing in Wales. 
And you could, and I looked at kind of the seasonal temperature of the ocean just to make sure, see how cold it got. And I learned a little bit about the surf spots and I thought it'd be really exciting to learn about new country's culture, do the science that we were proposing and also, you know, get a sense for the kind of the Welsh surfing scene. So all of them ticked the boxes and, and then I moved to Wales and, and here I am 10 years later, I think. Yeah, about 10 years. So Amazing. I think it's really fun that surfing's kind of led the charge for you, your moves. Yeah, I, I think I noticed that more and more, like as I put all the pieces back together, it's it's never guided me in the wrong direction. If anything, it's kept me on this track that usually leads me to some sort of happiness or learning or, or, or learning about something that, that's unique. So um, I'm going to keep up with it, see how long I can go. I think it's a great plan. Served you well so far. <laughs> All right. So one of my other favorite questions to ask is if you had unlimited funding, somebody was just blank check, here you go. What would you use the funds for? What project? Yeah, these are all really, I'm, I'm like prepared for anybody I bump into the elevator. These, these are really great questions. You can ask <laughs> I think that all of my research, everything I, I do, whether it's looking at past climate or past ocean chemistry or, or how corals are growing, it comes back to not just learning about how the climate was or, or these different topics and, and getting research for that kind of more typical scientific inquiry, but it comes back to education and actually people understanding about the ocean. So I'm lucky enough to have at one point in my life met a physics professor and learned about the ocean. I didn't have earth scientists really. I had, you know, broadly physical scientists. So I didn't know very much outside of what I knew from surfing about the earth system or ocean sciences or coral reefs or importance of all these kind of marine environments. And so I, if I had unlimited money, I would create like a global kind of literacy program where we had education across the world from the young ages of three to four to even older as and where it was needed to help people have a perception around the earth system, the space they occupy on earth, the place they are in the environment, their behavior, how it interacts with these environments, what it means, what is even climate change, you know, um, there's a lot we have to do. We all don't grow in isolation or we all have different kind of childhood lives and, and that mm -hmm. impacts us. And so we need somewhere to have something systematic in there. And so for me, it's kind of a earth citizen literacy program mm -hmm. from three to four globally for those who live close to reefs, for those who live far away, for those who, you know, don't feel potentially or think they feel the impacts of climate change to where they do for us to have a universal appreciation. So, so that's kind of what, where I always come back to, I suppose, these days is that global education, global literacy. I like that earth literacy program. So yeah. I feel like people that live along the coast are probably a little bit more attuned to the changes uh, just because sea level rise and those changes have been very uh, visible. What would you, in your earth literacy program, what would you teach in the module for people that just don't see these things? Yeah, I think that that's like the, the, the question, right? And so if you mm -hmm. live close, you reliant on it, you understand it. And then it's about kind of, well, if you, you know, what can you, what can you do if you're fishing that environment? Mm -hmm. Do we have to fish less? But yeah, you're right. Further away, what would you do? I mean, I think I'd initially just start out by introducing kids, communities to these regions. 
uh, but doing mm-hmm. it in an exciting way and, and, and teaching right. to them about kind of what we get from these environments, what are beneficial for the people that live very close, but also for, for them, you know, for, for people who say are landlocked. I don't think they really know very much about, you know, what we call these ecosystem services or these natural <laughs> benefits that we gain. And so I, I suppose it's a balance of, of trying to explain that natural side, the things that are tangible, like the fish we get from these environments. But then also kind of explain that if we lose these environments, they're impacted as well as coastal communities. And that's something to really be aware of. And so as a society, we want to help each other. And so it doesn't just come down to coastal communities having awareness. It also comes down to non-coastal communities. And I think it goes beyond just coral reefs. You know, it's thinking about pollution and and bodies of water in landlocked Mm -hmm. areas. You know, so there's a whole range of things you could touch upon. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, the general interactions and contact with nature or lack thereof. I think that yeah. would be a big part of it. I definitely think contact with nature and, and learning. And, it, you know, it's funny because I feel pretty aware, but COVID and we had a lot of persistent lockdowns in the UK and where the kids were at home and it just, we got out and we did like nature walks every day. And I learned so much about the species of plants and trees and because we were just had that time, I guess, had that moment, it was, it was there. So I think it's, yeah, finding space for people, space and time, desire, desire because they think it's important to be in natural spaces. Yes, I agree. (laughs) What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be an amazing day that things went right and it was just glorious and you saw an awesome creature or it could just be a day where things went wrong and it makes a really great story now yeah I know I think I've got like both ends of it um (laughs) I suppose I suppose uh what really stands out to me is my time in, in Fiji it was uh myself a colleague from Australia and another colleague from Wales. All three of us were females. So we were going to these four different locations and, and going to do this coral drilling, which the lead we had someone who had the most diving experience. So she was the kind of the scientific diver. And we would go around to all these locations and kind of rock up with our with our air and our equipment. And I'm not sure everybody believed what we were gonna do, but um I remember drilling at one site along the south coast of Viti Libu, which is one of the islands of Fiji where most of the people live, like 80% of the population. And we, we got into a boat and we, we had support from the local villagers. So it was a really small community of about 800 members. And so just a few kind of supported us. Little kids, they would like wish us well for the day. And we'd go out to the reef flat and we found one big coral head. Uh, so it was around two meters tall. And so uh, we drilled that for the afternoon and and we extracted it. And on board the, the boat were three of the local uh, villagers. And one was pretty high in kind of the hierarchy of the community. And um, we extracted that core. And just how they viewed that core, they were just fundamentally surprised. I don't think they thought that that's what it looked like below the coral head, like the, the coral skeleton. Mm-hmm. Also, there was really interesting kind of different colors and different bands throughout the coral skeleton. And so they started to think about in that moment, a little bit of their history. They were like, oh, I remember when it was really murky, this one fishing season, or they were thinking back even further than that, there was a hurricane and it really impacted the coral in this way. So they were starting to recollect the reef history just Mm. by looking at the coral core. And that Mm. always just stood out to me, that interaction with 
that object kind of invoked for them a lot of, they were having kind of thinking of anecdotes of what they've seen and experienced in their lifetime of, of what could have happened to a coral. And I don't know, I thought that was really empowering. And I've still tried to kind of think about how to do that again, have that moment again, or do that in the future. But I found that really intriguing and empowering for them. Yeah, making that connection between, you know, what they've seen and experienced and what the coral also was experiencing at that same time. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty cool. Whenever I look at that core, I'm, I always think of that moment and also think, what the heck's going on? <laughs> <laughs> Super cool. That's a great story. At the end of each episode, I like to leave the audience with a conservation ask to go forth and take into the world. What would you like my audience to take from your episode today? Yeah, well, I, I think that that's a really good, I keep saying this, that's a good question because it makes you think. <laughs> A lot of the stuff that I talk about is kind of not abstract, but it's hard to then translate it to to local conservation. But I've tried mm-hmm. to have a good think, and I think it comes down to a few things. I'm really keen on having people just learn more and think about their local environment. And so I know I've talked about kind of te- topics like ocean acidity, but if you learn a little bit about it, maybe you could ask the question and look toward kind of local Um, conservation groups if there are and think about well actually what's going on for our local environment when it comes to this question could we monitor it in some way you know could we reach out to the university and think about how to monitor it that's one really big thing we need is a better understanding of how these variables um, change at a local scale so we don't Mm. have a really good understanding of that so I would say learn more about what's going on locally, um, whether it's your climate or your acidity in the near shore water. And then I would think about just kind of linking in with any local groups. Are there any local groups kind of um, thinking about green spaces or thinking about just using the environment or interacting with the environment in a way that's, that's great, good for the environment? I think those two things at a local level in addition to the typical ones that you talk about, which is think about your transport, is it environmentally friendly, reuse and recycle, those sorts of things are really important when you think about kind of climate change. Mm-hmm. But it's the other things now, I think. We've got to know more about our environment. Thinking about, I want to create like a hub, an environmental hub at all near shore, like coastal locations and have local communities at the core of that hub. I love it. I, I will do it one day. Come back to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep checking in. <laughs> awesome. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, and learn more about you and your research, where is the best place to do so? Well, I think you can definitely find me on Twitter. Uh, at Cindy Rocks is my um, Twitter handle. And then, yeah, just an email. And you can find me at Cardiff University. And I'm always up for a chat a talk, or just if you want any help thinking about how to do things at a local scale, I am definitely up for talking. I'm very proactive and like to hear people's stories. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our chat. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's, it's great to talk about surfing science and everything that I tend to enjoy. So thanks for, for having me on. Absolutely. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. 
Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.